Well, hi, friends, and welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are in a series we've been looking at over the last several weeks at pairs of biblical siblings and their tensions, their rivalries, and the reversals in them. And uh, last time, we took a look at that famous pair of uh, brothers Jacob and Esau, and um, then that sort of sets the stage for where we're headed today, right, Sarah? Yes. So today we are looking at, we're still in Jacob's family, uh, and we're actually going to look at two sets of siblings today. Uh, The first set is Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. And then we're also going to take a look at Jacob's children. Um, But we want to talk about them all together because I think that the rivalry between the two sisters, Rachel and Leah, definitely influenced the relationships that their children all have. Because um, for those of you who may not be aware, Jacob did marry uh, two women, Rachel and Leah, And as a wedding present to both of them, their father, Laban, gave each of them a maid. And, but that, that might be jumping ahead of it. But so, but really those two maids eventually become uh, concubines, maybe might be the right word for it, for, for Jacob. So Jacob ultimately ends up having four women giving birth uh, to his children. So as you can imagine, that's a very, very complex family. But let's take a step back and let's let Jacob meet his wives um, because there is some trickery here as there seems to be in Jacob's family. Uh, so if we go to, Gen- this is all in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 29 is at the beginning. Jacob has just left his family Uh, He is on the run from Esau. His father is either in the process of dying or has recently died. And he is running away and he goes back to his mother, Rebecca's family. He goes in search for his uncle Laban. And while he's there, he comes across the famous well, the well where his father's servant meets his mother, Rebecca, and realizes that this is the woman for, for his master, And so he like, but this is where it all happens. And so Jacob comes upon this well and he too gets water from the well drawn by a beautiful young girl named Rachel. And so then that's kind of how he meets, he meets Rachel and Rachel's the one that brings him back home with, with her to meet her father, who is uncle Laban. So they are cousins, by the way. Right. So we're going to maybe like put a couple asterisks here at the outset here. There's a number of places where this story breaks from what 21st century America tends to think of as like acceptable ways to meet potential romantic relationships. Um, and that uh, is not outside the realm of possibility that, yes, you would marry a cousin or second cousin. That's part of the background. Okay. And then, yeah, that uh, that other layer of the the echoes of the of his mom's uh meet cute story with his dad that Isaac and Rebecca had had their sort of uh 
introduction or, or kind of the way Rebecca gets introduced into the family happened at a well and the feeding the sheep or giving water to the sheep scene maybe is in the background here as, as Jacob sees uh, the, the beautiful and lovely and talented Rachel getting water for sheep again. This may be like the closest that we get to our romantic comedy, like meet cute scene in the book of Genesis so far. Um, and that pretty quickly then Jacob uh, c- connects up with his uncle Laban, who he's gone to just because he thinks this is the one family connection, the one bridge he hasn't burned yet, um, and thinks maybe he can work with or work for uncle Laban for a while. So he hasn't gone thinking maybe I'll get me a wife, but uh, he thinks maybe I'm going to outrun the people trying to kill me and make a living for himself for a while. Yeah, so he works for Uncle Laban for a month. And after a month, uh, Laban sits him down and is all like, hey, just because you're family, does that mean you're going to work for me for free? Name your price. And so then Jacob's like, oh my gosh, your younger daughter, Rachel, is so pretty. Like, I would like to marry her. And so Laban goes, okay, work for me for seven years and you can have my daughter, Rachel, as your wife. So seven years come and go. Uh, Jacob works really hard, is very successful, manages to like increase all of Laban's like flocks and herds and like does really well. Um, And then so at the end of the seventh year, they have a wedding and lo and behold, Uncle Laban gives him his daughter, Leah, the older daughter, as his wife. Like there's a veil, like heavy veil. So like he has no idea who his wife is until the morning when all of a sudden it's like, Oh my gosh, who did I marry? You're not Rachel. So dun, dun, dun. So scandal, just absolutely scandal. And it, I mean, like this is again, one of those moments that seems like it's funny and it's okay to recognize that this is funny that Jacob, who is known for tricking people and being a jerk just really takes after the family, uh, the family hobby of tricking one another because Laban kind of pulls this trick on, on his nephew, uh, Jacob, and then backs up saying, Oh, well, look, I thought you understood. You have that. My older daughter has to be married first. And that's why I switched sisters on you. And that's who you've married. And but what a brilliant thing, right? Because like in the in the society, you can marry multiple women. Like you can have multiple wives as long as you can support them. And so you know, Laban's just like, it's okay, it's okay. Like complete the marriage week of this one, and then I'll give you Rachel for your wife now, like in a week. But then work for me for another seven years. I know you're good for it, but just work for me for another seven years to like pay off the price of marrying my daughter. (laughs) So it's like, what a great way to kind of like, just ensure that this like guy who is really successful and God is blessing and blessing everything his hands touch stays in your employment for another seven years. Yeah. So, so like now we find ourselves 14 years and a month later and, um, Jacob now has married these two sisters. And, uh, even though, uh, Leah is the older of the two. She's sort of treated like she is like damaged goods or not as important because Jacob had wanted Rachel. So there's this, she is not the picked one. And because of that, then God sort of for a while has favor on Leah and uh, gives children through Leah. And uh, Rachel now is the one who feels like she's left out because she doesn't have children. And this sets up another layer of competition. Now it's not 
the beauty pageant, which one of us will Jacob pick? But now it's who will have more children. And again, another valuing of who's more important uh, because who got picked romantically and then who has more kids. And so the, another layer of reversal happens, right? Yeah. And it, it, I, cause this competition of uh, how many children can we, can like, can I have, and can I beat my sister gets to be so extreme that, you know, Rachel, who is barren for the longest time, uh, is the first to give her maid to, to her husband so that she might have children through her. So that way in the counting, it's, you know, kind of like, oh yes, well, my maid's children, she's having them on behalf of me, kind of as a surrogate. So like her numbers in, are just included in my numbers. And so like, again, this, this might feel weird to us, like who who nece- don't necessarily assume having more children gets you more points in the winning at life, you know, contest. But yeah, this is sort of seen as your, your implicit worth is how many children can be attributed to you. And sort of like way, way back when we were talking about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, there was that uh, sort of assumption of, well, any kids that uh, Hagar has with Abraham, we'll count those as Sarah's kids. And that all, you know, we'll, we'll be winning then. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the, the 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 world of this story assumes that in a way that our ears in 21st century America might not automatically go, why are they competing? So eventually you get um, a whole mess of kids by these four different either wives or to put it politely concubines. Uh, you've got uh, Rachel and her maidservant and you've got Leah and her maidservant and all of them have eventually born children. Eventually you get, even Rachel has children uh, with Jacob, right? Yes. Uh, So mostly we're just told about the boys. Um, We don't really know about any daughters except for one daughter named Dinah. And so this is one of those like big things of like, well, was there only one girl or was the girls just not counted and named in the Bible? Unclear. Very unclear. Uh, But we're only told about one girl, Dinah, who is Leah's daughter. Um, And Rachel, through most of the story, only has one son, Joseph. Um, Later, she has a second son, Benjamin, but that son is born, like, considerably later. Um, So, like, he... For those of you who know the story of Joseph, Joseph, like Benjamin is born after Joseph is sold into slavery. So he's he's a bit down the down the line. But it's kind of it's yes, the maidservants children seem to count in the count of Leah and Rachel's numbers. But once Rachel has a son, that is Rachel's son. He is elevated above everybody else including the maidservants sons who are considered rachel's if that makes sense like he's still above them because he is actually rachel's son so this becomes kind of like the tension we saw with uh isaac and ishmael too right where for a while uh everybody in that triangle and by which i mean only abraham and sarah hagar didn't count uh were happy with okay we'll take ishmael we'll count him as on our team and then when isaac is born all of a sudden Ishmael is damaged goods. And while he doesn't really count, Isaac is more important and we have to get rid of Ishmael. Um, So yeah, there's this sort of, as soon as Joseph, a biological child of Rachel and Jacob is born, 
everybody else is way, way less important. And Joseph is deemed the favored son. So not only because he's the youngest, so there's already that tension when older brothers and sisters tend to look down on the younger ones because they get babied or they get favored or whatever. On top of that, Everybody in the family admits, yep, this was Jacob. If he could have just skipped right to Joseph, he would have done that. He would have been happy to have just Joseph and not had any of these other, you know, extra kids. Um, and and Joseph treats his, or Jacob treats his son Joseph that way, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, he definitely, um, he, he definitely loves Joseph more. I mean, we have a whole musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber about how he loves Joseph more. You know, Joseph in the te- Technicolor Dreamcoat. Right. Um, you know, he's given special gifts and special places. And, and it seems even though uh, it's not just Jacob and the family, but, but God, because um, he, Joseph has these dreams that end up coming true um, that place him above his brothers. Right, right, right. Um, and this, this may raise a little bit of like the same kind of plot questions you get with movies that have time travel, like back to the future about like, do things in the future that go back to the past, make the things in the past happen? Like, because Joseph has these dreams, is that what sets the animosity that makes his brother sell him into slavery so that later he can be the one who's in position in authority in Egypt? There's that whole, does the dream start this whole animosity or not? Um, but it seems like already dad is doing his darndest to make everybody know that Joseph is the favored one dreams or not joseph doesn't help his case at all because he kind of rubs it in when he has these dreams and will say hey brothers wait till you hear this cool dream i had where i was better than you and needless to say his brothers do not take that well um so uh but but jacob has has started things down that line before we go in further into the story of of joseph though i want to make one more note in the in the story of when jacob is is with his uncle laban before they leave is um the 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 way joseph and family get back to where their their family ancestry was with abraham and and them um is at some point jacob has just tricked laban so many times that laban says i can't we can't be together anymore we keep stabbing each other in the back and we can't do that anymore um and not not only because uh, I can't just kick you out, I can't kill you, your family now, and you're married to my daughters, but like you can't keep milking my fortune away. And there's this moment where they part one another. And I, I guess it, to me, I feel like I need to call attention to it because it's one of those moments where a Bible verse I heard one way at one point in my life means something totally different if you read it in context. There's this moment where... Um, uh, uh, where J- uh, Jacob and Laban are are separating. They've got their stuff all separate from each other and they're going different directions. And they each say to each other, like swearing an oath, may the Lord, may Yahweh watch over us while we're separating one from the other. And I grew up hearing that as like a lovely blessing. And in fact, I grew up in a church youth group where we used to close our gatherings with the words, may the Lord watch between me and you while we are absent one from another. And we knew we knew the name of that it was the, the Mizpah benediction because it, it happens in the in the place of Mizpah in the book of Genesis. But it wasn't until way, way, way later that I learned this, the context of that. And that when Jacob and Laban say this to each other, they're not saying it sweetly. They're like, I can't trust you. You keep cheating me. May God watch over you and make sure you don't cheat me anymore while we're not while while I can't keep an eye on you. It is like totally suspicious, like God will get you if you keep cheating me. And I heard it as this lovely goodbye, farewell kind of a moment. Like another reminder, that was a lovely sentiment in my childhood church group, but it was not what the Bible story is actually about at all. <laughs> anyway, so 
eventually you get to uh, Jacob and family have headed back to the land of Canaan. Uh, we talked a little bit last time. There's this lovely reconciliation scene between Jacob and Esau. And now Jacob's trying to make a living for himself back in the land of Canaan, where his grandfather Abraham had been, and gives that famous gift to his son Joseph. Yeah, he gives Joseph this this beautiful coat, um, the coat of many colors, you know, just this gorgeous gift, um, unlike anything that any of his brothers have ever received. It's it, another sign that he's the favorite. It is interesting to me, if, if I'm remembering right, I've seen that um, there are translation variants, that either the coat is a coat of many colors or a coat with long sleeves, and I guess the Hebrew will bear either translation. Um uh, which seems funny to me, like how could the same Hebrew letters be either long sleeves or many colors? But it seems like at the very, oh, yeah, Sarah. I have stuff. Okay, so oh, really what we're supposed to uh, take away from this is that more time and effort went into this piece of clothing. Because um, really, ultimately, it doesn't matter if it right. was a coat with many colors or a coat with long sleeves. Both are harder to do than most people's clothing because um, if it has many colors, that means that the the fiber was colored and dyed before it was woven into cloth and before it was sewn into a garment. Uh, so that's harder to do than just making a fabric and then dyeing it all one color. Or if you're putting sleeves, it means that you are actually sewing the the woven fabric, which is also harder. Most folks would have just um, taking a long piece of cloth and like cut cut out a place for the head and then sewn those that that opening shut so that it wouldn't fray and then sewn the sides together and you would have your arms free. Um, That takes less work than trying to like also take fabric to create sleeves. You got to figure either way, like this, this piece of clothing went, there was a lot of work into it. And depending on the age of Joseph, that doesn't make any sense because he's still growing. Right. And you get the sense too, that like, if you are living in relatively hot, arid uh, climate of the ancient Near East, um, and most of your brothers are the ones doing the outdoor labor, you know, like grazing with the sheep and all that kind of thing, um, you're if you've been given the coat with long sleeves, that's like the sign dad has groomed you for middle management. That like you're not you're gonna be the one in the office of the air conditioning. You are not going to have to be the one who's doing the difficult work of um, like actually wrangling the sheep or things like that. Joseph is given that position uh, of privilege from from the the get go. So whether it's colorful or whether it's uh, long sleeved, it like you say, it's just a sign that. Dad has set him apart and given him the special gift, and he is not going to be the one doing the hot, sweaty work. He's the guy who's going to be the supervisor. And that that sort of supercharges the tension between Joseph and the brothers, right? Yep. Which is why Joseph is sold into slavery. <laughs> and, like, because they, they are very much like, okay, well, we need to get rid of this punk kid because he's... Dad favors him. He's... He, Joseph was also a brat and like tells on his brothers a couple of times and like gets them in trouble with their dad. Um, but whether they were right or wrong, they did sell their brother into slavery. And, and even probably wrong. Don't sell your, your siblings into slavery. You guys don't do it. Um, and while he was, yeah. 
That's the nice thing they did. Right. They that, yeah, that was the feeling true. That was plan B, because plan A was we'll kill our brother, and then somebody, and like, and maybe it's not even really um, nicer so much as it is, it's just greedier, because they throw him in the pit, like, all right, we're going to kill him now, and then someone's like, wait a second, we could kill him and make no money, or when these Midianite traders come by, we could get rid of him and make money for him, uh, off of him, and still get rid of him, and now we all have money. So this is like where greed becomes the check on on uh, hatred, um, and we're pitting, you know, uh, uh, deadly sins against one another. But so now, yeah, Jacob is now sold into slavery, uh, carried by Midianites who are on their way into to Egypt, and the brothers come up with a clever plan to cover for what's happened to their dear brother. Right? Yeah, I think they they take his his fancy coat and they smear some blood on it and say that like what wild animals got him. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this is all that's left to show for it. And as predicted, when a favorite son dies, probably any son, but especially a favorite son, there is lots of mourning. Like, parents are sad. And I would argue, because we do see the brothers later on, they come to regret that they did this thing because of the grief that their parents show. And... While Joseph is gone away into Egypt, living his life, and um, Rachel has another son, Benjamin, and and dies. We do not really hear any more about Leah or um, the two concubines, the two maids. Um, presumably, they also die at some point, but we're not told whether that was while Joseph was enslaved or if it was after the reconciliation in Egypt. All we're told is about Rachel's death because Rachel is still the favorite. And we we could maybe in broad brushstroke recap the plot points of what happens to Joseph while he's down in Egypt. But again, feel free to see the Broadway musical that makes this all in song and dance. Um, Joseph is indeed sold into slavery. From slavery, he has a false accusation of trying to assault uh, the wife of his owner and ends up in jail. In jail, it gets uh, it, it's pretty rotten there, uh, but he runs into some uh, co-prisoners, cellmates who have formerly served Pharaoh, and he's able to interpret their dreams for them. One of them eventually gets restored to power, and when Pharaoh starts having bad dreams, uh, the the former cellmate of, of Joseph goes, hey, I remember a guy who used to be able to interpret dreams. Maybe he's still there in cell block D. Let's go see. And Joseph then has a conversation with the Pharaoh and gets raised to a, a, stat, a stature of prominence in Egypt, right? Yeah, he's basically second in charge. Right. And, and a famine hits the land, and, and, and that was part of Pharaoh's dream. Like, he has these dreams about this famine that hits, and so Joseph works things out so that Egypt is saving up grain in the seven good years of plenty and, and extra so that when the famine hits, not only does Egypt have food, but the surrounding areas have food, including where Joseph's brothers are living. So that raises this really interesting sort of, again, like it's almost like a, a plot twist, like in a Charles Dickens novel, like where, oh, and who should come along? And of course, Charles Dickens stole the ideas from the Bible. It's not that the Bible's riffing on Charles Dickens, but like almost like in a Dickens novel, 
where should uh, Abra- or where should Jacob's family turn? But of course, to Egypt. And they don't know that Joseph is the second in command. And jo- Joseph is now the one who's, you know, wearing Egyptian garb and nobody knows his background or his story. So that when they come, I mean, and they're basically refugees, right? They're people who are fleeing because there is no food in their former land. They're looking if there's a way they can get food, whether it's they're not even necessarily looking to live there permanently, but they would like to go do whatever they have to do to get some food and bring it back home. Um, and then their plan is uh, to go back home, be able to live through this famine time. And that, that brings them into contact with, with Joseph without them knowing that it's Joseph. Right. And the family trickery continues <laughs> because Joseph doesn't, Joseph doesn't want to tell them that he's their brother. So he like invites them all to come have supper with him. And he's like making a big to do about them. Like, you know, like, Oh, honored guests. And then, um, and then he like has a servant sneak a gold goblet into one of their sacks or something. Right. And, uh, and he's like, as they're leaving, he's like, stop thieves one of you stole from me and they're all like no no we didn't like search us but we didn't steal from you and then he's like nope then why is there this gold goblet in this bag and so he's going to like he arrests the brother who the who the who's goblet great. was yeah and, and um so the, like it, it's some big long rambly plot of to get them to go home bring home their their youngest brother to prove that they aren't lying about something or other and so they bring down benjamin and i think he does another trick and he like again plants something on a brother and it's well it just kind of keeps this time yeah benjamin and they're all like oh my gosh no like we like this is our father's favorite son we have to return with him or like our father will just die from the heartbreak and um you know take us take us instead take all of us but don't take our youngest brother benjamin um and eventually like this moves joseph to tears and he like sends out all of the servants because the servants also don't know his true identity and he reveals that no i i'm your brother joseph it's me like how tell me tell me honestly how is my father so there's this moment of beautiful reconciliation but yeah sometimes we we iron out the wrinkly parts of joseph who we want to make into a hero has this kind of like trickster moment too probably because he learned it from dear old dad and probably because he learned it from uh great uncle laban um but yeah so eventually there's this reconciliation and the brothers at one point have a conversation that that you know 10 other brothers have this conversation with themselves um oh man is is joseph gonna be mad at us eventually when dad dies um and so they have to have a final scene with joseph and they're like we're really sorry about what we did um and joseph has these beautiful words of reconciliation and also it's one of the moments where god sort of returns back into the conversation and it stops just being an interesting dickens novel and becomes like god is back and because joseph says what you intended for evil god intended for good Mm -hmm. so that there's this sense of the brothers aren't off the hook for their rottenness toward him but yet god was at work in the midst of even their evil and even their their ill intent for him so let, let me ask collectively of us in addition to just being an, an entertaining story that like could be a standalone you know, musical or movie um or cartoon like the prince of egypt um 
what um what what does any of this mean for us? Why why is it important? Why why bother holding on to this story? And what does it tell us on, on our ongoing quest to look at sibling rivalries and reversals? For me, it's not so much the sibling part of it, but just the idea of what God can do and how God can deliver um, someone or, or a family or group of people. Eventually, you know, in this case, a nation, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the midst of what seems like absolute chaos. Yeah. It, it it reminds me uh, along those lines of like the duality of things that look like they are bad news are not necessarily bad news because we don't know the end of the story or something can be bad in one level and it can be wrong that the brothers sell their brother into slavery. But at the same time we can say, Oh, but God was able to bring something good out of it. It reminds me of that old story. Um, I think I first heard it mentioned in that movie, Charlie Wilson's war from a few years back, but it's, it's supposed to be an old Zen story where um, the guy, the, the father gives his son a horse for um, a birthday present and everybody in the village goes, hooray. And the Zen master goes, we'll see. And later on the son is riding the horse and he falls off and breaks his leg. And everybody in the village goes, Oh, how sad. And the Zen master goes, we'll see. And uh, then the nation goes to war and all the sons are being called to go fight in the war. But the son who's got the broken leg doesn't have to fight because he got a broken leg and everybody else goes, Oh, how wonderful. And the Zen master goes, we'll see Um, that like we're always in the middle of the story. And, Part of the, the I guess, the, the power of what scripture does is when you get to an end point in a story, you can look back and go, here's this good meaning of these bad things that happened. And it doesn't let the brothers off the hook, but it also doesn't leave them as irredeemable villains either. That because God brings something good, the brothers have responsibility for what they do. And yet God is able to do something good through their rottenness. That that That's complicated. Um, and maybe that's an important complicated view of of the world we need to have when it's so much easier to cast people as either villains or heroes and maybe maybe that's not really how life is like as as uh, sarah was mentioning the the sort of trickery that even joseph does like this person who in my childhood was lifted up in bible stories and in musicals as like an unqualified hero Sometimes you forget, oh, yeah, he was kind of a jerk to his brothers when he frames them for stealing. He may have, you know, ulterior motives or this is maybe because he wants to get to see his dad somehow. But that's still kind of a jerk move to make. And so we can say on the whole, Joseph does a good job, but he also does some jerk things. And and we could even say, too, Joseph's plan for Egypt to start saving up grain during the years of famine is on the whole a good thing. But it's also what sets into motion um when the people of Egypt start selling their land to Pharaoh so they can buy grain, that's what ends up with a system 400 years later under slavery, where either you're enslaved to Pharaoh or you've, you've put your land in hock to Pharaoh for grain and Pharaoh controls everything. Um, so like part of the, the seeds of that terrible system are laid here because everybody's willing to sell their land to Pharaoh. Um, and that sort of sets up the tension of the Exodus story later on, too. I think one of the reasons why I really like this this story of Rachel and Leah and Jacob and all of their children is because it's, you know, they're a big family and it's messy. Yeah. That there isn't really such a thing as like the ideal image of biblical family or marriage. And that really they're just kind of, you know, these three to five adults, however you awkwardly want to count the maids, um, they are kind of thrown in together. We don't really ever hear whether or not Leah wanted to 
be married to this guy with her sister. Um, you know, we were told that Jacob and Rachel loved each other, but like Leah is constantly just trying to get her husband's attention. But they're they're family and they're just trying to figure it out. And they don't do it well at times, <laughs> but that that's what they are, is they're just family just trying to figure out their relationship with each other. Right. That, I think that that's helpful too, because sometimes we, we sort of assume that like the, what's the Bible's position on what family should look like? And we just sort of assume it's this cookie cutter, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, uh, sort of, you know, and they live in the suburbs in a gated community and like zero people in the Bible actually have that kind of family because they haven't invented, you know, gated communities and suburbs yet. But like the people who we uplift as central figures all have these very, very messy families. And instead of the Bible going, oh, and they were so terrible because of this, it was like, yeah, this was messy. So maybe don't copy this because you think this is the right way to do family. But yeah, God works through the, these messy situations where there's two sister wives and concubines. And even when the families do rotten stuff to each other, that doesn't stop God from both loving those families, blessing those families and working through those families. Yeah. There, I mean, there's so much, we've mentioned it before. There's so much trickery from, from the onset of this family, you know, from Abraham. And even though that wasn't trickery, you know, with Hagar, but I mean, from that, that point forward, there's so much trickery going on. And it's not these stories, I don't think, are saying, well, if you're, you know, if you can use trickery and manipulation, then God's going to bless you. No, it, it's saying that even in the midst of all that going on, even in the midst of, of all the evil, in, in a sense, that's going on in this family, um, God's still going to work and is still going to bless them. And so, like, when when I see folks dealing with hardships and maybe evils that have been placed on them, maybe because of their family, I can say, well, look, you know, all this crap happened to Joseph and all this crap happened in Joseph's family, but yet they made it through it and God continued to bless them. So I'm going to trust that God's going to bless you and help you work through whatever has happened in your life. Right. To me, that reminds me then, like, as we treat the, the, take a look at Bible stories, we can't treat them like Aesop's fables, where there's like, in the end, who's the character I'm supposed to copy and who's the character, who's the villain. Um, And, you know, at the end of an Aesop's Mm -hmm. fable, the, the 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 wrong person, the bad character is supposed to get their comeuppance and the good person is supposed to get their reward. And um the, the Bible is is messier than that. It's like here here are people who make bad choices and they don't always get zapped for it. Sometimes God's response to them is I love you anyway, you stinker. Um mm-hmm. and the difficult job for anybody to wrestle with these stories is to be able to say on the one hand, it is not okay to trick your siblings or trick your dad out of the inheritance or blessing. That's not okay. And yet that doesn't mean that anybody is beyond God's use or blessing or redemption. Um, And that means like our, our constant attitude has got to be, we got to be able to call each other on stuff and say, this is not okay, or this is not okay. But also to extend the possibility God does good things in the midst of all that. So um, are we thinking there's, there are more things we need to highlight about this story, or should we pick up the story uh, about another set of uh, siblings and, and their rivalries in a future episode? I think I've, I, I've said what I wanted to say about Rachel and Leah and all of the tr- children's. Fantastic. Well, um, thanks for listening and joining us here for conversation. Uh, join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye.